Mark chapter 12, continuing in these last few days of Jesus' life here on earth and ministry. I had an interesting conversation with a lady last night, and before I get to this, just share this quick testimony. She and her husband had gone to, uh, to a conference in Dallas a while back, and the pastor there had this young Muslim giving his testimony, and as he was kind of concluding, the pastor says, well, don't forget to tell him about, and kind of prompts him to tell another part of his story. At that moment, she said, I kind of rolled my eyes at the insincerity of the pastor wanting to make sure that the testimony was all he paid for. And he got up to speak, said a few things. She rolled her eyes the second time and made a note. And somewhere later in the, in the message, he said something that just kind of put her over the edge. And she, she not only rolled her eyes, but she wrote a note, kind of bringing into question his ministry and very intentionally left it on the seat for it to be found. She said it was full-blown judgment of this man and his ministry. She said, when I got home, I realized that I had gotten up, they had a bag that they give at the conference with, with material in it. She already had a bag that had her Bible in it. And when she got up to leave, she picked up the bag that they gave and forgot the one that had her Bible in it. She didn't know it till she got home. She started trying to find it, called back to the church. This is where we were sitting, and the Bible was gone. They didn't have it. No one had turned it in. wasn't there. And she said, I want you to understand. She said, I've had this Bible for years. She said it had every note, had every slip of paper, sermon topics, everything in it. And she said, I have grieved over that Bible as if it was a child. And she said, did God punish me for that judgment? Interesting question, because she was very convinced that he had. And I said, but I can only tell you what God hits me with first, and that, that is, if you conclude that God punished you for that judgment of, of this pastor and of a, this ministry, then you just kind of make God mean. Kind of a bully, because I can pick on you, I will. Because you did something I, don't, I didn't like, I'm just, I'm just going to do this mean thing and get you back. And I told her, I said, there's nothing in me that allows me to go there. My heart can't do that. I said, but this I can believe. If you start describing the Bible and having a love for this Bible as if it were a child and been grieving over it to the point that she said, I can't study anymore. I said, God is very ready to correct idolatry. And you ought to have seen her face. I said, you have attached something to that Bible that was not ever intended to be. You gave that Bible life. Instead of that Bible giving you life, you gave it life. It became a person to you. It held everything that you, you could ever imagine. And she said, I don't want to take notes anymore. And I said, I can understand that because God is, is desperately trying to tell you that everything you need to know, he's going to sow it in your heart. There's nothing wrong with studying. And, you know, Scott, you had shared enough about knowledge and about gathering this that I, I pointed to you and I said, I've got a friend. I couldn't remember exactly how many years you laid your Bible down, but I knew it was a long time. I didn't give her a number. I just said a long time. And uh, I said, because he was determined, as clearly as I can remember, to kind of forget everything he knew. All those conclusions drawn, all those things that were hanging, 
because what God wants you to recognize. She said, I have an awful memory. And I said, that's wonderful. God loves those. Because then everything can be fresh in the moment if you'll just trust him. And that's when I told her, because it's, it's, and I don't know who came up with this. It was Bill Johnson or somebody at Kansas City. I don't really remember. But I do remember hearing, you know, it was so strange that we trust a book that they didn't have and don't trust the spirit that they did have. And that, that you could tell that hitter. Just interesting what we can do and what we can turn into an idol. What we can worship that was never designed to be worshipped. And I said, I will make myself change Bibles so that I can't go back and look at the notes that I had there from time before. Because I, if I go back to that Bible, then I'll end up, my mind will go right back to the things that I learned once. And I, can't, I just can't do that. I have, to, I have to lay that down, get another Bible, start over. So the Bible that I use on Sunday morning, this one, and the one I use on the Tuesday night Bible study and the one that I teach Sunday school out over three different Bibles because I don't want to be stuck into those things so that I have to go back to God in the spirit and learn again. Well, here, here we are, Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 18. Jesus, toward the end of his life, you know, got very, very serious about parables and he was diligent in them, but these were the things that were happening the parables that he was sharing, but this is a moment when the Sadducees come with a question. It says, Then came unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. You know, they didn't believe in angels. Uh, according to Acts, I think it's Acts 27, it says they didn't believe in angels and several other things. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his, that, his brother should, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed. And the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. And I bet this woman is saying, why, why don't you just let me die first? Seven husbands, no children. If I'd have been Jesus, I'd have, I'd have stopped the story right there and I said, man, what an awful story. Poor woman. My goodness. And Jesus answering said to them, do you not therefore err because you know not the scriptures, and I love this, nor the power of God. They would have probably argued and said, we know the scripture. But truly, they did not know the power of God. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. And it's touching the dead that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore do greatly err. The Pharisees had been at Jesus for a long time. The scribes and the Pharisees, we hear those terms coming and as they come against Jesus, they question him, they plot against him. But the Sadducees are strangely silent. But they're not silent anymore because here is a group of people that really don't believe, as the Pharisees do, about a resurrection. And again, in Acts 23, I believe it's verse 7 or verse 8 or somewhere in there, it says they didn't believe in angels nor spirit. So no resurrection, no angels, no spirit. They were very much the materialist of the day. They kind of worshipped what they saw. They worshipped what was in their hands. But they want to try to, again, catch Jesus, trip him up, 
make him look ridiculous in an answer so that they can find accusation against him. Because now some things have happened, resurrections, Lazarus raised, these kind of things. Now it's got their interest and now they're coming against Jesus as well. So they propose this ridiculous question to Jesus. It's kind of odd for a group of people who didn't believe in the resurrection to put a question before Jesus about what happens in the resurrection. They had a very limited view of what could possibly happen. The Sadducees, to the best of my understanding, if you kind of look at what they did believe, they did believe that there could be a resurrection, but it was basically a repeat of this current life, that heaven was just this life improved. So to them, it's kind of a legitimate question. If all heaven was, was a repeat of this, when we get into that next place, who's that woman going to belong to? Again, such a ridiculous question, but that's what they were asking. Whose wife would she be in that other world would be necessary to resolve? But Jesus said, do you not therefore err? It's interesting to begin to teach people that you don't know things about the Bible. I teach on Tuesday nights for about an hour, and I answer questions for about an hour and a half, simply because they're hearing things that they have never heard before. And you recognize how often Jesus could say back to us that you err because you know not the Scripture. It's not that you haven't read them. It's that you haven't let the Holy Spirit teach you. You don't know them. You're not intimate with them. We know them as Scripture. We know them as words, we know them as concepts, but we don't know them as truth, and we haven't received them as revelation. Life-changing. So you don't know the scripture about what is going to happen in the future. That's a big thing. You don't know about what's going to happen in this future state. He says, nor do you know the power of God. What's his reference there? What's the point of reference when Jesus says you don't know the scripture? That's pretty clear he's talking about what happens next. What does our What does our future look like? But he also says, but you don't know the power of God. What's he referring to? That statement kind of needs a target, I think. Because they've set this question in motion that says, what's going to happen in the future? But then he also comes back and says, you don't know the power. What's that pointing back to? It points back to this reality that says, if you think for a second, that what's going to be on God's mind in that moment is something so ridiculous, you do not understand the power, the authority, the move of God's heart. You don't get it. Because the moment that we step into that reality, these kind of things, these kind of questions, will not even be relevant within the story of what God has planned next. What does this future look like? You know, this, this is pretty tender stuff. Because we do typically believe that heaven is an extension of this life. We talk about marriage, we talk about relationships, we talk about all kinds of things about what they look like in heaven. I don't even discuss with people other things about what heaven could be or couldn't be. Because this fact I do know, that my imagination can't even begin to get close to what it's actually going to be like. That I can testify, that I can share. But I do believe with all my heart that the kingdom of God has already come and that we ought to be experiencing that kind of life now and things like marriage 
are not the greatest gift that God gives us. It is a necessary gift that God gives us, but it's in so many ways, and y'all can really disagree with what I'm fixing to say, but marriage is a limiting factor and not a liberating factor. We want it to be kind of what heaven is like. Well, I can say that because of who I'm married to. If I was married to somebody else, I might not say, well, God, I hope heaven cannot be marriage again. I don't want to do this again. If it is, I want to do fruit basket turnover because I don't want the same one. Now, please notice I said that, but I'm very content that Jan, if if anybody had one that would want to go to heaven, I have her. This is recorded. It's dangerous. Jesus is saying, your perspective, if this is what you're holding up, if this is what's on your heart, if this is what matters, then you don't understand the power of God. Now, what that begins to tell me, and all it does in me is create a mystery. Because we look at heaven as the end. We kind of hold it in this place of, made it. This opens the door, at least, to the possibility. But those things that happen next have as much purpose or or grander view than what this is. We make this about purpose and that about the the conclusion at the end. And I'm thinking Jesus is saying, you don't know the power. You don't know what God, you're truly not understanding what's going to happen next. My mind can't quite get around it. I know that. I, I know the few things that I can tell you from the scripture that that seem to make sense and that God is kind of broad. And, but man, that's a subject that I cannot even approach. I'm lost on most thoughts about heaven. I just know that my mind can't quite get around. I do know, believe with all my heart, that if, when John the Baptist came and said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what does that mean? If, I have it, if something is at hand, what's, what does that mean? It's right now. It's coming right now. With the coming of Jesus... The kingdom is in place. And the reality of what begins to happen is kingdom life. What happens now should be far more reflective of an eternity that we ever make it. We see it as so different. And my imagination, at least in the, in the heart of God, is that it's, it flows as naturally from one to the other as you could possibly imagine. We see it as an abrupt stop and a new beginning, and I believe in God's heart. There's such a connection and a continuity because the kingdom is here. And it's, I hate to reduce it to just this, but it is somewhat, some element geography. Kingdom here into the reality and the presence of the king. I believe there's far more connection from what Jesus is saying. Verse 25, he says, For when they shall rise from the dead, so it's telling them that they're going to be raised from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. In, in Luke it says, in Luke chapter 20, I'm Neither can they die anymore. So he kind of adds another one. Sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? You can't marry, nor be given in marriage, nor can you die. Seems kind of a harsh statement about marriage, doesn't it? Not going to marry, not going to be given in marriage, not going to die. Kind of all one thing. Seems odd. Neither can they die anymore. Marriage is certainly ordained, blessed by God, established from his heart to perpetuate family. But because there will be no death, Because there will be no breaches, no brokenness in death, you begin to to come to the reality of at least some margin of it. If there is no death because death has been overcome, then there is no need to perpetuate what is perpetuated here in marriage and children. So they couldn't die anymore, but are as the angels which are in heaven. So they won't be given in marriage They won't be married, 
but they are as the angels which are in heaven. So again, this, he's creating more mystery here than I can possibly solve in words. But I think it's one of the most fascinating pictures that Jesus paints. Because he says, in its place, you will be somehow in some phases, in some measure, like the angels. And we don't hear of angels having offsprings. They are created beings formed by God, that they're established that way. So, you know, Luke 20 adds, it says, equal unto the angels. We have to be careful because we, he's talking specifically here about death and resurrection. We're kind of not allowed to expand and say how many ways we're going to be like angels because he's narrowed it to the topic of death and resurrection, that we will be as the angels, but it's a very specific comparison Kind of the one point, the immortality of their nature is how we will be. And again, Luke adds, and are the children of God to that statement. Again, not in respect of character, which is not what's spoken of here, but as it applies to life and eternity. We move from a decaying existence to a non-decaying existence, I guess is the simplest way that I could put it. Verse 26 And as touching the dead, so he's addressing this part, that they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses, even Moses, who they had just quoted for the purpose of entangling him, said, how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So his reference is, in my understanding, in this, this phrase of he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, was probably an added comment maybe added for clarity. I read things from time to time. I kind of like a reference book of the things of Josephus and kind of come to this piece. He doesn't mention it, silent. So it has some reason to believe that it wasn't there. It might bring clarity, but it's not necessary to to the statement. So why would Jesus use this picture of Moses and him at the bush and what God told him that he was the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Because he's saying, you're using them as a reference. You're using them as this point of question. But you treat them as if they didn't die. You have given them, in your hearts, immortality. You're bringing an illustration that fights against your own argument. That brings in question your own statement. Because if God, you're going to use this reference of Moses to try to trap me. And this is what Moses said in that moment, that God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and he's not the God of the dead. So they had their argument coming right back at them and saying, wait a minute, if we're going to claim that, if we're going to use that, then we're faced right right back with the statement that Jesus is making. You're using this illustration. Let me use this illustration too. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And And you're referring to them as living. So he affirms that God is the God of these patriarchs. If they had no existence, which the resurrect, no resurrection would have caused them to be, that they had no existence left, then how can you keep referring to them and to God being their God? So he was turning the argument on them. When the multitude heard this, in the last verse there, they were astonished at his doctrine. How many times now in, in our conversations about these scriptures has that come up? Last week, 
they asked about the taxes and he gave them such a profound answer as they couldn't use his words against him. Now the Sadducees, this group that was determined not to have their lifestyle disrupted, they, they lived in full agreement with, with the Romans because they knew if I do, then my lifestyle doesn't get bothered. My riches don't get touched. I can maintain the materialistic view that I have of life and it goes unbothered. So here they are hearing this answer back from Jesus and they were astonished at his doctrine. And they said, Master, thou hast well said. That had to be strange. They had in that moment to concede, and I just make this point, and I don't want to beleaguer this point. We look at the Sadducees and we see the stubbornness in them and, and we see the, the, the resistance in them. But that stubbornness is fully alive and well today. Man, it is in place. And we look at the Sadducees and say, look at what you were confronted with. And even they would say, here, here man, that, that surprised me. Well said. It's amazing how when truth is spoken within the Christian church, within the New Testament church, and what that word encounters is worse, at least here, than what the Sadducees did. How many times... Has truth been spoken? How many times, in how many ways, and how many scriptures have to be covered to bring a truth and a heart still sitting there stubbornly saying, I hear it, but I won't believe it. I won't accept it. Because if I accept it, it rocks everything, that, that, and I have, to, I have to give up everything that I've listed that I have been so stubbornly determined that I believe about God, that he will do or that he'd never do. And I'm hanging on to it. I don't care. I'm going to hang on to it. Man, at least they said, well said. At least they recognized that what he said was profound. And I'm astonished within the Christian church. Even I look back at my own life and see that, that dogmatic, doctrinal stubbornness and saying, God, I really don't care what else you show me because whatever you show me has to fit in what I already know. Because if it doesn't fit with what I already know, it can't be you because I've already got it figured out. I know the answer here. And then so many years ago now, so clear when God says, if you will allow me, if you'll do one thing, if you'll take down those parentheses that you have around what you believe, I will continue and continue and continue to teach you. You've got to take down the parentheses that say, this is all that I know and this is all that I want to know. If you'll take them down, I'll teach you in every direction. And I get to live today in that mystery, constantly being astonished at what God is teaching right now that is totally brand new. It's amazing to come to that understanding. I point to Scott a lot, but, but Scott is that challenger to me. To go back and to listen and to recognize when someone said what revelation is. It put me on this quest that said, I need to understand Revelation more. Again, Revelation is not this light from God shining down something brilliantly that I've never seen that rocks my world. It's God, when he said it, it's just, it creates such a unique picture. It is an unveiling. And you look down and realize that what it uncovered, it was always there. It's not new, it's eternal. It's always been, and I've never seen it before. And you... Flip it over and you realize what God has just done. 
he uncovered something that, that is so intimate, so personal, so powerful, changes my life. Why would I not want that? When I hold that up in a, in a scale of that kind of life, of revelation, that is new and exciting and powerful and fascinating over and over and new against this dogmatic doctrinal stubbornness that says, nope, I've got it figured out. Don't tell me what I don't want to hear. Because if you tell me, I'm going to pull myself in, I will become stoic, I will set as the Sadducee set, daring you to confront what I currently believe, and I ask, why? There is no choice here. There should be no choice here. My goodness, if God has something he wants to reveal to me, why in the world would I dogmatically say, I'm not going to take it? Because it doesn't fit. It's not who I am. not what I believe. I share this because I talk to so many people. I have encounters with so many people. And it's very strange when we look at the world and say, who in the world seems to be on a path? And they just won't listen to anybody. Who comes to the top of that list quickly? And I see that heart over and over and over and over. The heart that says, I hear you, and I'll even tolerate it, but it will not change me. My life is pretty set. I like what I'm doing. I'm pretty pleased with it. I had a conversation with Scott other night. I talked about strongholds and, and things like that and about why people hang on to them, and sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's other things. You know, sometimes what it is, they like it. You just like it. It has found a place in their life and don't even recognize it as a stronghold. It's just, it's just a favorite part of their life. There's a lot of reasons why we live the lives that we live. God's saying, just like he did here, they were astonished. He says, after that, they didn't ask him any questions. They couldn't. They were totally foiled. They couldn't ask him anything else. Ask ourselves questions like, why would God include this in the scripture? Why is this a necessary teaching for us? I think every time we come across one of these passages, we're asked to just ask ourselves, if Jesus is going to hold it up, is this kind of truth? And we examine our life, what does our life look like? Do we have within us the heart of a Sadducee? Do we have the heart of stubborn resistance? that cannot concede, that cannot yield, because if we do, it will begin to disrupt our life. We have to step into places we've never stepped and be uncomfortable in ways we've never been uncomfortable. Leave me alone. I'm taking care of my Christian responsibilities. Leave me alone. He's asking, do you find yourself, does your heart line up with that of of the Sadducees? Nobody can answer that question except you. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come again to these passages and ask you, Lord, to just bring revelation to each heart. But I pray, Lord, that every time, every time we open this book, every time we look at it, every time that you allow us together collectively to open this book, that the reality of it always creates a supernatural difference. We have become amazingly good at hearing and allowing nothing in. We may gain it as knowledge, but we don't accept it as life-changing truth. And we're amazingly good 
at putting up a filter and saying, this is, I got what I wanted, I, I'm just get rid of everything that I don't. But I pray, Lord, that we would never approach this word without the expectation that, that by the work of the Holy Spirit, you're going to speak, you're going to touch, you're going to create a supernatural evidence, a supernatural reality that is attached to your truth so that it does more than accumulate in our heads creating knowledge, legalism, whatever it happens to create, arrogance, because we know stuff, but there's no demonstration, there's no power, there's no life change. I pray, Lord, that we would always come to these passages, even these that are a little more odd like this one tonight, still asking, still seeking, still wanting, the supernatural reality of the Holy Spirit within this truth. Because it's packed in here. The great mysteries of eternity. The great promises of what's coming next. The assurance of a world that we can be a part of. You bring that in these gospels talking of this same story. I just pray, Lord, that it would always be received within our spirit so that it can create change and life differently afterward. Let us come every time to these passages with more than a casual interest, but an eager pursuit of truth that will change our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.